0: Good day. I have on the line Stuart Patrick of the Council of Foreign Relations. He is a senior fellow, and my name is Charles Cotillo from the Royal Historical Society. I'm here to discuss with uh, Stuart his new book, The Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World. jump right in, what would you say, Stuart, is the primary thesis of your book, and what is its novelty as a as uh, opposed to what other people have written about it.
1: Well, the primary thesis is that um, it's quite possible for the United States, uh, contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, to participate in international cooperation, including international organizations and treaties, without sacrificing its independence. Uh, The novelty of the book is that it's the first uh, real examination of why the sovereignty debate in the United States is so complex and confused and polemic, and it, it also um, deals quite a bit with uh, Donald Trump's uh, particular uh, approach to sovereignty, which uh, is really the most full-throated defense of, in his mind, American independence and freedom of action that we've seen basically um, since the United States embraced global leadership at the end of the Second World War. Uh, it's uh, really uh, timely in that regard because it, uh, it explains the thinking that's uh, gone into what the president thinks and his senior advisors and and much of his base as well.
0: Hasn't there always been this conflict uh, in the words of uh, the late Harvard professor Stanley Hoffman uh, in American foreign policy between what he called or termed primacy versus world order? And isn't this, in essence, your book is a rediscovery or an, a a deep investigation into those two possible roads to American uh, leadership abroad. There definitely
1: has been for a long time a this this inbuilt tension of the United States as uh, the primary power or the hegemon if you will internationally and the degree to which it's willing to play by the rules set for others The United States as many have pointed out beforehand is much better at uh, wanting to have rules that are binding on others while retaining freedom of action but that's really more a debate about um, that's it, quite common in, uh, in the academic literature uh, surrounding realism which is that you would expect a big power in a sense the world's most powerful country to throw its weight around what's I think unique in my argument is that I look at a lot of uh, other aspects of American sovereignty, this isn't just a desire for freedom of action. it's uh, a uh, a great sensitivity, uh, sometimes verging on paranoia that the United States is in a sense going to have its constitution uh, and um, and even internal freedoms um, strangled by or uh, infringed upon by international ac- uh, action and international entanglements and um, this touches. Very deeply on aspects of American political culture, um, not least uh, the, the commitment to popular sovereignty in the United States that has been there since since the foundation, but also uh, a sense of American exceptionalism. So it's it's not simply the sort of traditional great power discomfort with uh, with rules binding and, and constraints. It's really more um, of a question, or at least at least as much of a question of some sort of um, adulteration of, of the American way of life. And that's really what I try to explore uh, in this book.
0: How would you differentiate the Trump version of uh, this sovereignty, for lack of a better expression, obsession uh, with the uh, people abroad, say like um, Boris Johnson or Viktor Orban or Marie Le Pen?
1: Right. I think that, um, you know, there are certain aspects of it which are similar. I think in, uh, when you, when you think about people like Marine Le Pen and Victor Orban in particular, sovereignty there is really, there's a blood and soil conception of, of the nation. And the idea here is that, you know, the concept of sovereignty begs the question or raises the question of, well, you know, who do you actually mean by the people who are sovereign? And in a lot of these places, uh, sovereignty is really about, Um, you know, your, where, where your root stock came from in sort of, you know, genetic or blood terms. And I think. That has been that, that is often the way um, it 's played with these with, with these nationalist populist uh, movements abroad. The United States, of course, has been based on the proposition it hasn 't always been honored, but the proposition that that in a sense, we are a universal community open to all who come from other places around the world, provided that they accept um, the basic principles that are at the heart of the u s American constitution and our other founding documents now Donald Trump has verged sometimes, as, as well as, as many of the people in the, the alt-right and, uh, and white nationalists, uh, some of whom are his supporters, has verged and moved a little bit more occasionally into this more nativist uh, viewpoint. But I think, uh, you know, to be fair to uh, the president and many of his um, staunchest supporters, I think what he is drawing on is is not simply uh the this nativist view of 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 what the people are, nor simply great power view it's i think a, a there's a major um emphasis on the fact that international entanglements are um diluting the u s constitution and the sovereignty of the people, and that we are um increasingly caught in a web of international um, law of international treaties um, and organizations my my uh, point my thesis of the book is that actually we're quite quite good at defending ourselves against these perceived incursions on what i call sovereign authority we're very good at defending the us constitution unlike uh, what boris johnson talked about we we are not in a position where we have that are in a country that is subordinate as Britain was in certain ways to a supranational that is a hierarchical body like the European Union are, are uh, involvement in international organizations like the United Nations is much more of a horizontal arrangement. These are intergovernmental bodies. So um, what Boris Johnson was complaining about, I think, was something, as he and he, he made this point, was something that Americans would never have countenanced, which is that we would never join a, a supranational body in which, say, a European Court of Justice or a European Commission would actually be able to tell us what to do. Uh, the United States simply doesn't accept a higher authority.
0: That's why the United States has still not signed, you could argue, the treaty relating to the International Criminal Court.
1: Absolutely. That's a, that's a, an excellent example of why we haven't done that. The ICC, while it has many um, laudable aspects, and of course for people who care about international justice and accountability for atrocities and other war crimes – uh, you know it, it has a lot of uh, positive aspects but the one sticking point and this was true even under democratic administrations which is why we didn't um, make a move to ratify it during um, the Obama nor the Clinton administrations is that it has an independent prosecutor that could that who has the power should he or she choose to do so to basically uh, pass judgment on uh, whether or not the United States had uh, had conducted credi- credible investigations of its own personnel in, um, in war zones as to whether or not they had committed atrocities. And that really is just uh, incompatible with uh, the U.S. Constitution, which uh, places the Constitution and our own court system uh, above all else as the ultimate foundation of American law.
0: On page 14, you make reference to uh, American, quote, uh, sovereignty has never been absolute. Can you elaborate a bit on that statement?
1: Yeah, sure you know sovereignty is um, is basically the the notion that um the fundamental political unit of uh, world politics is uh is this is the state and that the state um uh, has uh, at least as a matter of authority uh should have uh, supreme authority over its inhabitants uh over its territory and over its borders. now in point of fact, there obviously have always been violations of sovereignty um, there uh, countries have intervened against uh, one another despite um, even explicit um, uh, rules against that within the United Nations Charter even the most powerful countries in the world including the United States have difficulty controlling as a practical matter controlling their borders so um, there are There have always been exceptions to basically the rights of sovereignty. They tend to be in the minority. So countries that violate other countries' sovereignty, for instance, tend to make justifications for it. And they're also not just... A de jure or legal sovereignty has been occasionally violated, but you know de facto sovereignty or empirical sovereignty is violated on a daily basis by you know drug traffickers and smugglers and others. So um, it's it's a it's a general rule. It is the most fund it remains the most fundamental rule of international order. The entire uh, surface of the globe, uh, save Antarctica and maybe a couple of other places, small little places, are basically divided into sovereign states. But as as a rule, states have often struggled uh, to try to uh, reconcile their 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 constitutional uh, independence and their alleged freedom from intervention with the fact that uh, reality in, in in an interdependent planet is is quite messy and only getting more so.
0: In the book, you you uh, make reference uh, several times to uh, a uh, sovereignty bargains. What is that exactly, and why is it important?
1: Well, I began to reference that sovereignty has a number of uh, different components, and I really focus on uh, three of these. And I introduce, uh, just for conceptual um, clarity, um, a, a figure that I call the sovereignty triangle. So if you'll bear with me, um, it has, uh, as all triangles do, has three points or three corners. And at the top is sovereignty as authority. That means that um, that the state has uh, legal and uh, authority; it has constitutional in, in, uh, independence, and that it, it recognizes no supreme or or superior authority. You may recall the uh, those old ads for um, uh, Hebrew National uh, hot dogs, which said that uh, <laughs> that that we need to that. that Others may be substandard, but we need to appeal to a higher authority, meaning, of course, God in this case, yes. uh, for, for, the, for the kosher hot dogs. The United States does not, as a matter of course, uh, in political terms, at least, recognize any higher authority. And that's basically what that means. There's a second corner, which is autonomy or freedom of action. And that, that aspect of sovereignty is, look, we're not, we don't want to be like Gulliver on a beach, uh, you know, tied down by Lilliputians. And that's about freedom of action. And then there's a third component of sovereignty called – that I call influence, which is really the ability of our country to make our to, – to shape our destiny uh, in in, an, in a very complicated world. So you have these, these three aspects of sovereignty which sometimes need to be traded off against one another. And when people make arguments about sovereignty, they need to specify, are we talking about, hey, the constitution – that is authority. Are they talking about, hey, we want to be free, free as a practical matter uh, in terms of to 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 have a room, room for maneuver. And then the third is what well, we want to influence our destiny as a nation. The most powerful and uh, provocative uh debates over sovereignty tend to be about that top corner, which is authority. There's this notion that somehow international law and international treaties and organizations are running roughshod over America's constitution and and really uh, subordinating us to uh, things like, say, the International Criminal Court or imagining the world as some sort of large European Union that is constraining us. In fact, I argue that we're very, very good at uh, defending ourselves from incursions of international law, and we put huge amounts of reservations on treaties and things like that. The much more typical sovereignty bargain that I say that we do confront and need to make is between this notion that we have as because we're so powerful we, we should have independent freedom of action or autonomy uh, that that actually is very um, it, it's illusory often because the United States frequently can't get what it wants in a global age you know, when you have uh, transnational problems like climate change or epidemics or weapons of mass destruction or uh, terrorist organizations, pandemic disease, etc. What I argue is that frequently we have to make sovereignty bargains, and that means trading off some level of autonomy for practical influence. The idea is to move from independent or unilateral action to collective action, and that's the argument that I make. That's the sovereignty bargain that we are increasingly going to have to face as a country.
0: Can you expand a bit on your statement on page eighteen? Effective sovereignty is not the absence of foreign entanglements, but the extensiveness of a country's links with the outside world.
1: Right. I think that um, this this is really uh, getting to the the heart of the matter. I think that when people think of sovereignty, I use a um, I, I sort of use an analogy that you know it, it's as if you know. Many people think, you know, it's the power to be left alone. And I invoke Greta Garbo, right? That, uh, you know, it's, yes. it's she famously yes. said, I want to be alone, right? Yes. And, and, and then I, I say that actually, you know, in a, in a networked world of transnational uh, common problems, it's really, a little, really a little bit more like Mark Zuckerberg and how many hundreds of millions of friends he has on Facebook. You know, one can exaggerate that and just having connections, um, is, uh, is no panacea. But the argument here is that, um, the more, problems get um, to be transnational and cross-border, the way to actually uh, effectively um, engage uh, or effectively express your sovereignty is actually uh, forming uh, partnerships and alliances uh, and networks with others. And here's here's an example of that. You know, a lot of people think, well, when it comes to security matters, wow, the United States m- really needs to sort of fortify those borders and sort of look after itself. But if, as a practical matter, Think of weapons of mass destruction. It's quite possible that at some stage somebody could put a nuclear device or certainly a radiological device into a shipping container. Now, only about two, three, maybe 4% of shipping containers that arrive in the United States have, are actually inspected with any degree of rigor. To try to deal with this problem, there's something called the Container Security Initiative, which is a partnership between the United States and perhaps a couple of dozen other countries that have major shipping terminals. Think Singapore or Rotterdam or Yokohama, for instance, but also Long Beach and Seattle. Now, as part of this sovereignty bargain that we've made, we actually – Not only do we have U.S. customs officials in those ports walking those docks, we actually have Japanese customs officials, for instance, walking the port of Long Beach and Canadians in Seattle. Now, a lot of people who take a little bit more of a defensive attitude towards sovereignty would freak out about that and think, wait a second, didn't the Japanese attack us in 1941, or why are there foreigners inspecting, helping us inspect uh, shipping containers or inspecting containers bound for them, but that is an example of the sort of bargains we need to make, and they they need to be reciprocal bargains. If we're going to ask others to make certain sacrifices or compromises for our security, we've got to be prepared to do the same for theirs.
0: I was impressed by the way you handle the Treaty of Westphalia, going back a little bit into the uh, historical concept of sovereignty, because usually there is a division between political scientists and international relations specialists and historians uh, the former usually regards um, Westphalia as sort of a foundation stone or dividing line between um, medieval-type mixed sovereignties and um, a um, absolute sovereignty of the modern era, where the historians generally tend to, for lack of better expression, uh, regard this as being nonsensical, um, because there was lots of examples post-Westphalia of mixed sovereignties for sovereignties which are not absolute but only um, uh, um, not um, 100%. <clears throat> Could you um, uh, expand a little bit on your view of Westphalia and how it relates to the present concepts of sovereignty?
1: Certainly. Uh... I, I agree. I think that um you know there's a tendency, particularly amongst political scientists and, uh, and and to some degree international relations scholars, um, as opposed to historians who have a much deeper uh knowledge of and and, and a sense of the nuance, I think. There's a tendency amongst uh, political scientists to try to portray sixteen forty eight, uh with the the treaties that ended the um the treaties of Westphalia that ended um, the Thirty Years' War, there's a tendency to suggest that this is some sort of stark dividing line in the same way that, you know, one looks at, you know, 1066 and, you know, everything automatically changed uh, in in the mind's eye in Britain uh, uh, when William the Conqueror, you know, won at the Battle of Hastings. What you have to uh, recognize is that it's simply one milestone in a, much more gradual transition between a world of a really heterodox um, world of different and overlapping authority claims within Europe where you had, you know, the church and the Holy Roman Emperor competing with one another and you had you had. Uh, You know, city stakes, leagues of city states, um, uh, overlapping, um, overlapping authorities so that, you know, the king of France could be also in a sense the vassal to the uh, to uh, the the Duchy of uh, Burgundy, for for instance. But uh, the the point that I make is that there was this transition to um, gradually to a more uh, a a situation where over time um, the authority claims of rulers became uh, paramount over particular territories and um, obviously it took many many uh, decades even centuries for uh, certain states um, not least in not least the German state of course um, and uh, and the Italian state to coalesce into anything resembling what they are today furthermore when you think about even though the the state coalesced uh, within europe um in many in in ma- many of the 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 powers that ended up becoming the most the most powerful in the world as those Euro- as those european empires as those european countries um uh developed overseas empires of course uh they were not granting any sovereignty to the inhabitants of those countries so you didn't really get um, or, or those territories, so you really didn 't get the the creation of uh, of a fully functioning sovereign state system arguably until uh the end of the second world war and even after uh, a couple of decades decades afterwards, where you got through the process of decolonization in a sense the extension of this notion of the sovereign state system uh throughout uh the entire uh surface of the world again save save antarctica so it's a it is a much more uh uh, it was much more um, fluid. Uh, fluid situation, indeed.
0: And I suppose the best example is again looking at it from a, a historian's perspective is uh, pre-1914 Germany, the Kaiserreich, where you had a situation where Barver- the constituent states of the Reich, like Bavaria or Saxony, would not only have ambassadors in their own foreign ministries uh, with ambassadors in London, Paris, and Petersburg. They even had an ambassador in Berlin representing Bavaria vis-a-vis the um, the imperial German state. And I suppose the other more pertinent contemporary example, this would probably be, I think you go a little bit into it, is mixed sovereignty, is uh, the United States' relations with uh, American Indians, which are treaty relationships, which have been validated by the Supreme Court, uh, I think, almost 200 years ago.
1: Indeed, indeed. There are uh, over 500, I believe, uh uh, recognized um, native american uh, American indian tribes um, uh, and, uh, and other indigenous peoples within um the fifty united states and yeah they they by under the the constitution um and uh, and uh, f- uh, other statutes actually maintain um, uh, significant degrees of sovereignty. another aspect of sovereignty which um, I address in the book is and it's very interesting because I go back uh, and spend a lot of time. Uh, On this this sort of debates over sovereignty amongst the founders and uh, uh, the founding generation and of uh, of the United States and many of the debates that occurred during the time of the Articles of Confederation and then uh, in Philadelphia and the Constitutional Convention were really about how one should divide up the sovereignty. Of these uh, thirteen colonies uh, that had declared their independence, because it's very interesting. In m- many of the early documents, uh, the, the the United States is used in, in a plural fashion, as in "we," these these, these thirteen United States. And of course, uh, Articles of Confederation uh, apportioned that sovereignty much more in a uh, in a obviously by definition in, in a in a confederal way that left huge powers to the uh, to the individual states. Constitution. Uh, it ostensibly uh, created a situation where the people's sovereignty was, uh, was a large. It, it did split uh, split sovereignty, uh, but it it preferenced, uh the sovereignty at the federal level as opposed to the state level. But of course, uh, there was a very bloody civil war uh, fought over that issue. And yes. even today, even today, of course, uh, you find debates over states' rights. Interestingly, increasingly being made by uh, by in the last couple of years, uh, certainly since the election, being made by. Um, by uh, Democratic-leaning uh, states uh, uh, resistant to uh, some of uh, what they're seeing coming out of uh, de- uh, Republican-controlled Washington. So you have these debates uh, ongoing still.
0: Correct, and particularly in the case of uh, contemporary United States, the backlash against the United States' decision to withdraw from the Global Warming Treaty in Paris. And I think the governor of New York stating that, uh, as well as other uh, governors and um, mayors and municipal leaders that uh, they were going to disregard what the president had done and going to, insofar as possible, try to maintain compliance with um, the International Warming Treaty.
1: Indeed. And, and interesting, even I believe yesterday, um, uh, Andrew Cuomo, um, the uh, governor of New York, uh, also suggesting that he was going to chan- uh, challenge on states' rights grounds um, the um, The tax bill uh, suggesting that uh, because it uh, it was uh, an assault on uh, democratic uh, leaning um, uh, States that uh, already paid very very high taxes Um, So yeah, you you find this going on It, it, it going back to your earlier point about uh, how, um, say Bavaria would have had, uh, representatives in other countries, um, in, you know, before, before, prior to the, the First World War. It will be interesting to see how, um, far, uh, municipalities, but particularly individual U.S. states can push this. Um, it was very, it was fascinating to see that, um, uh, almost immediately after, uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, pulled the United States out of the Paris Accord. Uh, Jerry Brown, um, not only uh, with uh, with the governor of uh, Washington and governor of New York, um, re- released a statement basically saying, uh, quite forcefully, "We're still in." And then, almost immediately after that, um, uh, Governor Brown went to what looked, for all intents and purposes, like a state visit uh, to China, and sitting side by side with Xi Jinping. Uh, basically committed California to the the Paris um, agreement. And it will be interesting to see going forward whether or not we see a a more expansive uh, efforts by particularly large states like California to to conduct their own diplomacy and foreign policy within, of course, the constitutional limits, which do place constraints on that.
0: On page 37 and a little bit thereafter, you state that uh, contrary to popular understanding, states per se are not. Um, are not uh, opposed to globalization but in fact one of the primary contributors to the process of globalization can you expand on that a little bit
1: yes i think that uh, this is in a section of the book where i take on the the, the frequent argument that um that sovereignty has been placed at bay uh, which is actually the title of sovereignty at bay was it the title of an article is now more than 30 years old. The notion there was that with the rise of um, globalization and and multinational corporations and uh, very powerful non-government organizations as well as powerful individuals that of course the, that the state is not the only actor uh, on the world stage but also that it's being placed on the ropes because if you think about financial instability or mass migration or many other things um, that states are increasingly porous by this argument and and therefore sort of we're all sort of helpless um, uh, in that regard all, all all countries the argument that I make is that actually um, the state has been the handmaiden of globalization um, obviously uh, the the if, if if national governments uh, wanted to, uh, they could uh, p- pursue policies uh, that are much more autarchical along the lines of, uh, say, North Korea, et cetera. But I think that uh, national officials have recognized uh, over the, um, the decades, even centuries, uh, that there are benefits uh, – to uh, advancing and encouraging globalization, you know, and, and not least to to be able to have uh, countries uh, their their citizens take advantage of comparative advantage with with regard to international trade, etc. Um, there's also um, it, there's also been um, an area where uh, th- there's also been a trend where um, to Sometimes when states think that things are getting out of control, sometimes they will relinquish certain authority claims over particular areas. Uh, But at other times, they will uh, expand their activities to try to compensate, in a sense, for uh, the the downsides of globalization. So you'll get, for instance, trade adjustment assistance or an expansion of the welfare state in part because – that, uh, of, in part because there have been pressures placed by globalization. So I think it's probably more fair rather than to see globalization and the state as in entire opposition to see them as in a sense growing hand in hand. State functions will increase or contract in terms of what the, what the scope of governmental activity is and the sectors that they get involved in, um, to the degree that they want to benefit from
0: globalization. And you go into uh, quite a bit. Uh, The role of uh, Woodrow Wilson in this story. Can you um, uh, go into that uh, um, for the audience and state why he was an important figure in this story?
1: Absolutely, and this is a timely uh, question uh, because uh, uh, on Monday um, uh, January 8th um, it will be the centenary the 100th year anniversary of uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, famous uh, declaration of the 14 points which he argued should inform uh, any post-World War I settlement, or post-Great War, as it was then known, uh, settlement. And, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson uh, was a deeply flawed uh, character in many ways, um, stubborn and obstinate and perhaps overly utopian in some ways, um, and did himself no favors uh, when it came to the League of Nations, which was his Uh, his chosen vehicle to try to organize post-war peace Um, among other things he he took a very partisan approach and a very purely executive branch approach to dealing with post-war order rather than cooperating with people like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of uh, Massachusetts who is the uh, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, over what the shape of that should be but he he is the great he remains probably the most prominent um, Exponent or proponent of liberal internationalism uh, certainly at the presidential level in American history. His notion was that uh, the United States uh, needed to give um, up its uh, uh, Long attachment to non-entanglement some would say isolationism, but uh, certainly non-entanglement that that the which had been the um, the recommendation of uh, both um, uh, George Washington, obviously, in his farewell address, and then uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, George Washington has spoken about no permanent alliances. Thomas Jefferson about uh, non-entanglement, and uh, the United States had largely pursued a relatively independent course, particularly when it came to international alliances. What happened? Uh, uh, what uh, Wilson's uh, belief was that the world needed to be organized uh, in a way uh, with through international institutions that could help. Create not a balance of power, but uh, a, a collective security system in which uh, aggression would be outlawed and the only legitimate use of force would be um, the combined um, response of the international community against aggression. And so this was what he tried to uh, set up in his his uh, part in drafting uh, the covenant of the, of the League of Nations. Uh, obviously, um, that uh, effort uh, did not work out um, and there was a huge debate which I think is very very um, compelling today over the League of Nations if you one of the things that I actually begin the book with a, yes. with a vignette with with a vignette that I found um, really fascinating um, I had heard about it uh, but I had never read the transcript of there's a great debate in, um, in March of uh, 1919 just about um a month after uh, the pres- President Wilson himself had, had unveiled his uh, plans for the League of Nations, he had arrived to a hero's welcome uh, in, in Boston and made his way uh, south to, uh, to Washington. And a, a few weeks later, there was a debate between um, uh, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, Republican, who uh, was Republican, um, and. A. Lawrence Lowell, who was the president of Harvard University, is incredibly anticipated debate, um, according to the media, more, most anticipated since sort of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And it was should the United States join the League of Nations. And reading through that transcript, it's really remarkable. There are the, so many of the issues that that have come out now about sovereignty were front and center, including... Uh, what, what would be the implications of this for the U.S. Constitution, for U.S. freedom of action, for instance, under the Monroe Doctrine, for the balance between executive and legislative branch? Um, would it would it infringe upon how the United States uh, conducted its own trade policy? And finally, would it uh, would it expose the United States to a flood of of, of immigration from from India and uh, and China, Japan at the time, and other places? And if you if you really reading it, you see so many of the same issues coming to the fore. And, and, and importantly, also, would it change the character of what the United States was and, and, and what the United States stands for in the world? Would it make it hard for the United States to behave according to its interests and its values? Uh, ultimately, the United States, after a huge debate uh, within uh, Congress, Ended up uh, rejecting US, the Treaty of Versailles, uh, of which uh, the League of the League Covenant, the League of Nations Covenant, was a prominent portion of that. And instead of taking an internationalist um, vocation or uh, grabbing that mantle, the United States uh, elected um, uh, elected uh, uh, Warren Harding as its president and uh, went into a uh, period of uh, of what has come to be thought of as isolation which isolationism and um, so for the next twenty years and even as um, the international system began to crumble uh, not least because the united states was not a member of the league of nations and the league proved powerless it did have a lot of internal flaws anyway it's uncertain whether or not u.s. membership alone would have uh, caused it to work uh... but as as it world order crumbled uh, the United States still remains staunchly isolationist despite efforts by the uh, presidency of um, the President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt to try to get the United States more involved. It was only after Pearl Harbor uh, that basically uh, ended isolationism in the United States, at least for some time. And obviously, once engaged in World War Two, uh, their liberal internationalists sort of um, came out of the woodwork and they had a second chance to try to uh, realize some of the goals that Wilson had put forward, but in a slightly more realist way. And you see this within the United Nations structure, where you have a Security Council, where the, the United States, as one of the five permanent members, has a veto. So there was it was less that the United, there, there had been a big concern that the United States would have been constrained or been compelled to do things under the League of Nations. Uh, and there were there were real efforts made by uh, Franklin Roosevelt and after him Harry Truman including to work with the leading Republicans of the day to not make those sort of mistakes that Wilson made so you know Wilson in a sense was a Flawed prophet of liberal internationalism, but in a sense was a prophet of uh, US global leadership, which the United States for uh, more than seven decades after the Second World War really pursued and now the question is in the age of Donald Trump is that era Definitively over, or is this simply a, a, a brief parenthesis before we go back to it the way it was beforehand?
0: Uh, going back to that debate, when I read it, and it was an extremely good vignette, I, I'm impressed that uh, you were able to uh, pull that up and expand on it. I thought uh, to myself, oh, this is a very good debate because it illustrates two of the opposing views, but I suppose if we wanted to have for that time period, an all encompassing debate, you really have four points of views. The two, uh, Lodge and Lowell, Lowell being more liberal internationalist, a little bit akin to, say, ex- at that point, ex president Taft, and uh, Lodge being a more conservative uh, uh, internationalist, closer to Theodore Roosevelt. And then the two, Viewpoints which were not at the debate. One was a more absolute isolationist of, of a conservative nature, like William Senator William Borah, and the other one, um, completely absent, uh, probably even from political perspective, was a sort of um, socialist um, isolationist of say someone like um, intellectual figure, not a political figure, Randolph Bourne, or if you wanted the more contemporary incarnation. Uh, Senator uh, Sanders
1: yes I think very much so um what's interesting uh, I I, I absolutely agree and one of the points that I try to make um, is that the two is that ultimately um, Wilson's version of internationalism and um Let's say Lodge's version of internationalism, which I call sort of great power internationalism because there's no question that Lodge was an internationalist and it was not opposed to the league under any circumstance he he simply wanted it to have as 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 he made quite clear um, wanted to make it compatible with u uh, s constitutional system and u s freedom of action and obviously offered his own fourteen reservations uh, to to go uh, as counterpoint to that to the fourteen points of, of Woodrow Wilson but Ultimately, the the great power internationalism and the um, and the liberal internationalism and uh, canceled each other out. There was not enough common ground to get that. Perhaps as you you suggested, the the Taft as being sort of a, a bit more of a of a sort of an intervening um, between Wilson and Lodge. There were not an, a, there was not enough effort to make common ground um, to to achieve that. As a result of that, um, by default. Uh, the folks who, in a sense, won or, or were the only ones left standing were um, the, the 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 so-called irreconcilables uh, who um, and many of those were like um, Bora himself, a uh, just really much more uh, isolationist in in their viewpoint and. Um, it's interesting what you say about the socialist, um, uh, the socialist internet uh, isolationist. Um, and, and, and of course, there are there were there were socialist internationalists at that point. But uh, but very quickly, I think, during the, the interwar period, um, many of uh, after some initial flirtation with um, with uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, for instance, uh, the, the climate was not particularly congenial for. Uh, major socialist movement uh, in the United States, and um, that's that's often been the case. Um,
0: and would you say some a figure a little bit further on in the story, Senator Vandenberg, a very important figure in terms of uh, uh, American post World War II international uh, relations, and in particular the construction of uh, NATO, the Marshall Plan, etc. Would you say he is a progeny of uh, Lodge or Lowell, or some combination therein?
1: I think um, probably um, uh, a little bit. You know, he had he has as- he had aspects. Uh, I mean, I was obviously a, a you know Midwestern um, uh, Republican who probably has is a little bit more on the isolationist side of things than uh, than uh, than Lodge. I would say uh, he. But, and his conversion to, um, internationalism, uh, w- is, is absolutely pivotal. And also the fact that, um, that, that both, um, the Roosevelt and uh, Truman administrations really took pains to reach out to him, I think was, uh, was extraordinary, um, and of extraordinary importance and actually bear, you know, bear some relevance to our current state of, uh, of play in terms of, uh, you know, hyper partisanship. Uh, it's really, it's really remarkable the degree to which um, uh, the Roosevelt administration under uh, Cordell Hull um, attempted to t- win it during the Dumbarton Oaks talks, uh, when the foundations of the United Nations were being um, were being discussed by um, the United States, the UK, um, uh, the Soviet Union, and then and, and, and later uh, China as well, the 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 Kuomintang government. The there was a real effort to try to persuade um, uh, Vandenberg that this was uh, far from any sort of starry-eyed uh, utopian vision that would deprive the United States of its sovereignty. And that was a, a theme that was harped on constantly. And um, and Vandenberg himself had, had said that um, Pearl Harbor had ended isolationism for any realist. And so, but in his mind, the question was, well, what sort of, in, so then the question became, what sort of internationalism, uh, should the United States embrace? And, um, you know, uh, again, also during the Truman administration, um, you had, um, uh, Secretary of State Acheson working very, very closely with, um, Vandenberg, uh, to try to assure him that this would not in any way, uh, create an automatic commitment on the part of the United States to go to war against, um, Uh, Any aggressor to NATO allies, while at the same time, of course, trying to persuade uh, America's NATO allies of exactly the (laughs) reverse—that this was an ironclad uh, guarantee—and some very deft, uh, both domestic and international diplomacy on uh, Atchison's side to try to win um, uh, Vandenberg to uh, over to uh, uh, approving NATO.
0: Yes, in fact, in his uh, memoirs written 20 years later, Atchison was still complaining about the need to uh, cultivate Vandenberg and uh, his Democratic opposite number Senator Connolly of Texas.
1: Indeed, indeed. Indeed. Uh it would it would that's a, that's a being able to um to win them both over uh was quite a quite a feat.
0: Now there was a bit of a backlash in the fifties which you go into relating to something called the Bricker Amendment. Do you go into that?
1: Yes. Um the Bricker Amendment um was um a uh with the the handiwork of uh Senator John Bricker and it was an effort to try to uh ensure that the United States would not uh join uh UN treaties and particular uh any uh, UN human rights treaties and it placed Enormous hurdles; uh, it would have placed enormous constitutional hurdles, requiring uh, not only the normal um, supermajority to approve any uh, treaty, but also uh, the uh, to, to have state legislators, legislatures of the United States, approve of these treaties. And the motivation for the Bricker Amendment um, was uh, not strictly preserving American sovereignty, uh, but uh, specifically, was uh, uh, racial politics. Uh, I think there was a there was growing concern that uh, the human rights instruments that were being negotiated could be used by proponents of, say, integration and desegregation um, and civil rights in the United States uh, to try to improve. Um, the, the plight, uh, particularly of African Americans of, uh, of, uh, uh, and not, and not simply in the South, but, uh, but nationwide. And a lot of people who, uh, who were, had sort of racialist attitudes and, and wanted to maintain those status hierarchies, uh, and, um, and, and, uh, keep Jim Crow laws, et cetera, basically, um, saw this as an and not for the last time, I saw this uh these, these UN instruments as potential efforts to try to change the United States from the outside. And this amendment came perilously close uh to uh being passed uh only the intervention of the uh Eisenhower administration um, and the personal intervention of the president himself uh prevented this by by only a single vote from passage. Now Uh, One of the costs of that, though, was that the Eisenhower administration promised um, uh, members of Congress that it would not seek ratification of any UN uh, treaty, um, human rights treaty during uh, its term in office. And uh, that that legacy has lived on um, and um, it helps explain why the United States has taken it took so long to um, approve. Human rights instruments, you know, 40 years in the case of the Genocide Convention um, and uh, and several others. And it also it testifies also to the difficulty with which, particularly when it comes to human rights, the, the United States has had in ratifying. Uh, Many um, human rights instruments, partly for ideological reasons at times. uh, For instance, we've never ratified uh, the U.N. Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, although we have ratified the Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, uh, Another more recent example, which I I cite in the book, is is this sort of rather bizarre rejection of the U.N. Convention on the Rights with Persons with Disabilities uh, by the Senate. Uh, despite the fact that it was actually modeled on the Americans with Disabilities Act and would simply be an international projection of that treaty, uh, which had passed under George uh, H.W. Bush, obviously a Republican president and, and just the sort of bizarre types of accusations that were uh, bandied about, about, about why this was an affront to the American way of life um, by people like Senator Orrin Hatch and, and, and and others.
0: Wouldn't it be accurate to say that uh, Bricker's, um, contemporary um, equivalents like former Ambassador uh, Bolton, their um, view of sovereignty or alleged violations they're in in terms of American sovereignty is opportunistic rather than principled. So, for example, I don't think they've ever protested American employment of uh, the sort of swift-like sanctions uh, vis-a-vis foreign countries, even though that involves great violations of these other countries' sovereignty
1: yeah I think that there's a huge um you, you put your finger on on what is a huge contradiction um, in u s approach to sovereignty and that's uh, our sovereignty versus sovereignty for others the United States is has and I to some degree this is bipartisan but I think it's um the 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 willingness to violate other sovereignty in, in recent years has been perhaps slightly uh stronger on the uh, on the, on the conservative side of the fence but um but the idea here is that um The United States uh, for a long time has been much uh, more concerned about uh, making rules for others than uh, for having rules made for itself and also much more uh, dedicated to preserving its own sovereignty versus uh, violating uh, the sovereignty of others. Uh, This is was particularly noteworthy. This has been particularly noteworthy in in the the evolution of um, notions of contingent sovereignty. And this is the this is. The notion which is not simply American, uh, I, I should hasten add that that sovereignty is not absolute but but contingent, and the most well known um, example of that uh, is the what has become known um, as the responsibility to protect doctrine, which came out in the uh, 2005 high level, or so was endorsed at the 2005 high level summit of, of uh, member states of the United Nations, which n- says that if a country commits atrocities or allows atrocities to be committed on its territory, uh, then it violates um, the it has violated fundamental obligations to protect its people, and therefore that responsibility to protect evolves to in the international community. But that's not the only. Aspect of contingent sovereignty uh, an argument that uh, the Bush administration George W. Bush administration made quite strongly uh, was the notion that uh, if a state sponsors or harbors terrorists or if it uh, pursues weapons of mass destruction in Contradiction to its international obligations that it, in a sense saw uh, forfeits the right to freedom from external intervention and um, so Yes, the, the United States has been very good through, you know, some of these Treasury Department sanctions and other things in, in um, uh, not not only in um, uh, at times by violating through the use of force the sovereignty of other countries, but also uh, making its own laws extraterritorial uh, uh, to uh, to try to induce behavior change um, in, in other countries. And that, that is a uh, pretty uh, strongly uh, – that is a very controversial uh, practice and one that uh, elicits some uh, often uh, criticisms not only from U.S. adversaries but also from U.S. allies.
0: You wrote a piece in uh, Foreign Policy back in, I think it was the summer of 2011, supporting R2P. Do um, You still supported a lot of the previous uh, exponents of it like Michael Ignatieff Canada have more or less backed away from uh, their support of it.
1: I I still support the concept. I think that its execution and implementation have left a lot to be desired. Um, It was always going to be uh, a highly uh, sensitive thing to try to implement. I think that it would be wrong to say that countries get a free pass. Uh, I do think that if... uh, States are uh, governments regimes are committing atrocities, uh, ethnic cleansing, you know, mass campaigns of rape, um, genocide, etc. That if they are doing that, uh, I think that there's a moral obligation um, for the international community not to look the other way. The difficulty has been that uh, and this came out in the wake of the Libya intervention in particular. um, The difficulty has been that that. Some cases are less clear cut than others. And in that case, um, the there was uh, a strong, uh, strong argument made by uh, Secretary of State, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, that if, you United know, that if the international community didn't act, that uh, Muammar Gaddafi was um, going to uh, uh, order the uh, eventually basically the uh, the execution, the murder of, um, of that of uh, Thousands, potentially thousands, of, uh, of Libyan uh, opponents, including um, uh, innocent civilians, caught in, a, caught in a crossfire. the crossfire. In the wake of that intervention, which was approved by the U.N. Security Council, um, the China and Russia and some African countries as well objected that the United States had turned that and its Western allies had turned that U.N. Security Council resolution into a license for regime change. Um, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not they should have known, given the wording that that was going to be the most likely outcome, but still be that as it may um, other other s- certain countries have tried to governments have tried to to offer some qualifications the responsibility to protect one of them is this notion that was uh, offered by the Brazilians called responsibility while protecting, and that basically means that that it's incumbent upon any intervening coalition to Regularly return to the U.N. Security Council in uh, the United Nations more broadly to explain just how it is actually fulfilling uh, this and that There could be an opportunity to in a sense countermand that initial uh, uh, Verdict that yes, it's okay to go in to try to perform these operations for humanitarian purposes the difficulty with it, it operationally is that there's no such thing as a purely humanitarian intervention you obviously you inevitably are getting involved as a political actor on the ground and then you also have responsibility for what happens afterwards I think one of the things that left a hugely bad taste in people's mouths with respect to Libya was the fact that there was virtually no follow-up afterwards and so the situation in Libya has been uh, one of great chaos and violence and instability and uh, offering opportunities for extremism as well ever since that intervention so one wonders whether or not it would have been better to leave uh, Gaddafi in place. Uh, Arguments can be made on uh, on both sides of that equation.
0: Uh, Going a little bit uh, backwards, um, would you say that the policies of uh, America Unbound, as it was termed at the time of George Bush the Younger, do they prefigure in terms of not only uh, sovereignty but general foreign policy uh, the policies of the current administration?
1: Uh, George W. Bush um, was determined uh, even before 9-11, uh, he and his senior advisors uh, to try to escape some of the constraints of multilateral diplomacy. And I think, you know, in, in those cases, it was largely about uh, uh, increasing U.S. freedom of action and autonomy at a time when the United States um, was riding high. Uh, it was at the height in a sense of the unipolar moment um, at the tail end of the Clinton administration, even the, the French Foreign Minister had uh, talked about um, the United States as a hyperpower. Um, and uh, the administration came in, uh, basically uh, renouncing a number of different multilateral agreements um, and, and bilateral agreements as well, including the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty uh, with Russia. Uh, and it was. Um, you know, to some degree, I think uh, posturing uh, and, and symbolic politics against, uh, you know, to try to draw the contrast with an administration that had been seen as overly multilateralist and not uh, not strong enough, particularly in security terms uh, the Clinton administration by its Republican critics. Now, what happened uh, after nine eleven was that. Uh, despite a, initial an initial turn towards some sort of coalitional multilateralism, uh, the United States really determined uh, to, to declare. I mean, the Bush administration declared a global war on terrorism, and really would brook no interference in how it was going to go about prosecuting that war. And uh, it's uh, at least particularly in the first term had a had a very very unilateralist bent to it. And. Uh, I would say that the Trump administration, although I, I should say uh, in, interestingly though, by the end of the second term, the uh, Bush administration had come back to the United Nations and other international organizations again and again to try to uh, for burden sharing and legitimacy for its purposes. So I think even uh, the administration of George W. Bush recognized that, uh, that going it alone was not a viable option in the long run, that there had to be some level of multilateralism. In terms of uh, the Trump administration, you know, I think that, um, it, you know, in some ways they've borrowed from uh, the, uh, the Bush administration and the notion that the United States should not be unbound. But I think that there 's a far even more they've uh, they, it's a reaction against uh, the Bush administration uh, because the neoconservative agenda that was riding high uh, in the Bush administration really believed that you could make uh, foreign society remake foreign societies in the American image and that the United States stood for the not uh, to quote uh, documents at the time for the non negotiable demands of human dignity and the second national security strategy that, that the Bush administration put out was almost entirely about democracy promotion around the world, and uh, you know I think that you know what was distinctive about Donald Trump uh, during the campaign was, and, and also frankly uh, uh, Bernie Sanders in particular uh, on the Democratic side was the degree to which they were they were channeling a, a widespread revulsion uh, amongst the American public with this sort of unending nation building adventures and uh, interventions and wars around the world, and so. Uh, Donald Trump came in uh, with a much more, uh, some might say, cynical view that the United States uh, is not, you know, shouldn't be concerned about human rights and uh, and democracy around the world, but also a sense that, that, I think, channeling a sense amongst many Americans that to have, to be interested in human rights and democracy around the world inevitably uh, drove you to actually engage in foreign adventures that were uh, very costly in terms of blood and treasure. I think that's an overreading. I think uh, I think they've swerved the pendulum too much in the opposite direction, so that the United States appears to be simply a cynical great power that doesn't really care about human rights under uh, under this president and, and and who has an unfortunate tendency to cozy up to dictators rather than making some sort of moral differentiation between those that behave ethically and and, and actually trust their citizens and those uh, that are simply authoritarian. But be that as it may, I, I think that it, that that the overreaching of the Bush administration, and even to some degree of the more realist uh, and cautious Obama administration, uh, because obviously we maintained our involvement in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. That, I think, uh, put a, uh, a very bad taste in the mouth of uh, the Trump administration. Final thing I'd say about uh, Donald Trump is that, you know, it's, in many ways, he is a throwback uh, to the interwar period, that is, um, particularly the 1930s, um, because Uh, He has explicitly invoked the notion of America first uh, which well, of course the America first movement um, Was a desire to keep the United States out of the second world war and uh, You know that uh, phrase that obviously uh, Charles Lindbergh and others uh, who who were isolationists at the time uh, And basically said look we need to we need to uh, worry about the United States uh, first uh, uh, middle and last and uh, You know Obviously, it's not had has not been entirely isolationist with respect to uh, to Donald Trump. But you see a sort of sense that others have been in his mind. Others have been freeloading on uh, American um, American efforts. Uh, it's time for them to shoulder their own burden. Uh, he's cast uh, some doubt on the solidity of American um, commitment, defense commitments to uh, longstanding allies uh, and uh, so you see uh, a tendency to want to be much more selective in terms of international involvement.
0: Would you say that the uh, alleged obsession, American obsession with the sovereignty is um, exacerbated by the perceived decline of American power in the last, say, 10 years?
1: I think so. Uh, there is a there's a sense that um, sovereignty um is more at bay now than it has been. I think there's also a there's also the the global economic crisis actually uh, plays into it to some degree as well. Um, sovereignty uh, is is obviously in, uh, contentious when it comes to international treaties and organizations, and I think that the fact that the United States is has it has been feeling overstretched, or Americans have been feeling overstretched, and they're aware that other countries are. On the rise, not least China, makes them wonder whether or not uh, they should be a little bit more attuned to geopolitical competition and that and 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 be able to have more freedom of action so that they're not constrained in that in in that competition. Another thing, though, I think that's happened is, on the economic front is that um, you know for a long time the the international economy, the global economy, since the end of the Second World War has Dependent upon the United States to act as a leader in a number of different ways um, and it, You know to to basically maintain its market as open so that it always in a sense is an insurance valve For to keep global growth humming along I think what has happened partly with the rise of inequality in the United States and also in in response to um, the Great Recession where You know so many Americans um, took a big hit I think that there that there was a sense that uh, Donald Trump was able to channel that the United States was in decline its infrastructure was uh, in horrible uh, shape um, jobs were being exported overseas and to some degree this was because the United States had in his view uh, signed up to terrible quote-unquote terrible and awful trade deals and uh, that we needed to regain some sense of control, which in his mind was a, a large degree of what sovereignty is about, right? Is can you, can you actually determine your own fate? I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons, obviously, why uh, American workforce has suffered. Uh, they're not, they can't all be um, laid at the feet of globalization. Um, a lot of it has to do with obviously innovation and uh, advances in uh, different sorts of uh, technologies, etc. cetera. Um, the other thing though, is that the United States, has under Republican and Democratic administrations has done much less than it has promised over the decades to try to deal with retraining and preparing the workforce to deal with uh, global competition we actually have those sovereign capabilities we just haven't been using them and but I think that there's no question that, that, that it, it this whole sense of, of um, you know downward expectations as opposed to the notion that life is going to get better for your children. Uh, I think for a huge swath of the electorate, one of the appeals of Donald Trump was this notion that he was speaking for the common man. However, whether one takes that you know, seriously uh, in terms of his own policies or believes he's simply um, a plutocrat in populist clothing, uh, it, there's no question that it resonated quite a bit uh, for uh, a, a large swath of the American electorate.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would, what would it be?
1: It would be that uh, American sovereignty is secure. The United States has no there is in no danger of sacrificing any of its independence and its constitution, but it will increasingly need to make some compromises to its freedom of action to gain the benefits of international cooperation in in, in a complicated Uh, interdependent world
0: well thank you very much Stuart. uh this has been uh, very enjoyable Uh, this is charles katir royal historical society for new book networks thank you thank you